Welcome to Professor Forever. I am the Professor Forever. Going off the cuff again today. I am a little behind in my chores, my errands. And again, I have the luck to kind of choose my errands at this stage of my life. But I am a little bit behind in what I propose to do this week. And so I am just going to ramble on so that I get this podcast out in time. You know, I said I was reading Proust, and I am, and I didn't want to delve into the text and my Fingerhooks book club too deeply. But there are some things that I can say now because I've already discussed them with my book club member. So what I find really interesting about Proust is... Not only is it stream of consciousness writing, it is, well, at least for me, it creates stream of consciousness reading. What do I mean by that? What is stream of consciousness writing? So that is writing that just uh, follows a train of thought with very little editing um, and goes off on tangents. Sound like anything that you know? Ha! The Professor Forever podcast? Ha! So... My uh, speaking is oftentimes stream of consciousness speaking. So stream of consciousness writing was a modernist literary movement. Uh, But it seems like Proust was right before that, maybe. Um, Didn't check out my sources, so. But the way that he writes with... uh, tangents, tangential thoughts, flashbacks within flashbacks. It definitely is a stream of consciousness like writing, if not one proper. So for me, when I read stream of consciousness, I will follow, follow, follow. And you're talking about a lot of linking and adding up of subordinate clauses in a sentence. So a sentence can end up being a page or more long. So there are tricks that I used to teach in my literature classes about just finding the root sentence in sentences that have so many subordinate clauses. Sometimes I find my mind doing that while I'm reading Proust. But I also enjoy all the little dips and dives. So I think what happens is I'll go through a description that Proust is writing. And I'll be reading, reading, reading. And then I realize that I am kind of drifting off myself. But 
a key word or a very interesting metaphor or simile or passage will bring me right back. So I am allowing my mind to wander while I read. And this is what I am now dubbing stream of consciousness reading. Both my book club member and I agreed that this is a technique that helps a reader not get too dragged down in Proust. I also want to say that I feel like what Proust was doing was taking an everyday life and raising it to the level of art, or at least attempting to create art out of everyday moments. And that is, listeners, scholars, akin to what I am doing with this podcast. I am recounting thoughts, memories, ideas, theories of a life, and hoping that through my delivery of it, or the sound of my voice, or the stories interwoven that you might find it entertaining and perhaps a l'objet d'art, or an object of art. Saying it in French because of Proust being French. Anyway, I wanted to talk about photography. I have mentioned recently that I have started taking photographs with a monocular, which is one side of a binocular um, that you can, this monocular that I have, you can connect it to your phone camera and then take magnified photos or videos. It's a process, a learning process. And it got me thinking about the process of learning photography and talent. So I take a lot of pictures with my iPhone. I have, and I choose to do this to pay for unlimited storage capacity because I like taking many pictures a day. I might take 100 pictures in one day. And I just like them sitting there. I don't know why I'm, well, I'm not a clean person. We've talked about this before. I'm certainly not a disgustingly, grossly dirty person, but I am cluttery. And I, so I'm not the, you know, the neatest when it comes to messes. So, and I don't really see the messes and I don't really care about that. Um, So maybe that's the same way with my, Uh, photo folder on my phone. So where my practice with an actual camera, not my phone, came into my life was when I got a job at a weekly newspaper in the 80s. And I found my sister's Canon, C-A-N-O-N, that type of camera, A-E-1, in, I guess, my mother's apartment. 
So why it was there, I'm not sure. Because my sister Bonnie is the one sibling that I had that when she left home, she really left home. I don't think she, well, she came back once, but she certainly didn't come back as often as my other siblings for the aid and support of my mother. My poor mom, her kids were so immature, except for Bonnie. Anyway, so I found this camera and I had gotten this job at The Leader. That was the name of the weekly paper and it covered all these different suburbs. And I had been asked by the editor-in-chief if I had access to a camera and I had found this camera. I said, yes. And so he said, would you take it with you when you go do your reporting in Canfield and Austintown. I also covered the Boardman leader. Um, and so I said yes, and I started taking pictures. And I was really quite creative with the way that I would set up my photographs. I had a flash of a memory about one of the photographs that I staged recently. And it was a friend of mine, She's now a friend of mine. She was an athlete that I covered when I wrote for the leaders, a fabulous athlete. And she got 1,000 points. Well, actually, she got more than 1,000 points in her career at Canfield High School. And I remember getting the athletic director to bring out a ladder to let her either be putting the last zero in 1,000 on a scoreboard or she was pointing to a digital scoreboard that said uh, the name of their high school and then 1,000 on the digital uh, scoreboard. So I think that probably was it. But just this whole arranging, taking the time to get a hold of the athletic director and getting her out of class so that she could get up on this ladder and I don't know how other photographers would have captured that moment, but when I look back on my photography for this particular job and this particular, uh, this these newspapers, I am pretty proud of the way that I set up my photographs. While I was doing that, I ended up getting a column, a sports column, and I was covering sports for the local high schools. And I just started taking my camera with me and taking sports shots. And that became a real passion for me. Now, I have mentioned this before. I think I might be a dilettante. I think I'm a person who doesn't take too much seriously. Uh, and so I kind of float through passions. I'll have a serious passion for maybe even decades, but then it can kind of just drip away. I'm not a person who commits to passions with a, you know, a chastity belt of armor. <laughs> I don't know why I'm using that. 
<laughs> description. Anyway, I might be a dilettante, but for my tenure as a sports writer, columnist, and sports photographer for this this particular job, these uh, several newspapers, I was really getting into it. I would place myself below the basket, um, whatever team I was covering, their home basket for whatever half they were in. And I remember the referees always saying, get back, get back. And I would get back for like 10 seconds and then I would get right back up under the basket. And I got some really great shots during that, I don't know, five years that I worked there. I had some training from the actual formal photographer from that job in how to use a darkroom, how to develop photography, how to push film. So, you know, you have to, with sports photography, you have to shoot at a really high speed in order to capture things um, clearly. And so you push the developing to kind of make that um, quick film come out more distinctly when they come when it's processed. I learned all of these things on the job, and I got pretty good at it. I do remember, and I think I've talked about this before, but it sticks in my heart that I was taking a picture at a football game and I was standing next to a photographer from my town that I actually knew because I played on his baseball team. He sponsored our softball team. And when this kid in a storm went to catch a football, muddy as he was, he was covered in mud. Um, and so was the ball, kind of. It was sleeting down rain, took this shot right before he crossed uh, the goal line, but the photographer next to me, Robert Sen, said, you missed that shot. And in fact, I caught that moment of action where the tip of the football was just touching this kid's fingers. It was so beautiful. I have a whole scrapbook of sports photography that I have kept over the years. Maybe I'll put a a sampling of it on my Facebook page. And then something happened. So then I had to go away for a while. And this is going to be a subject of an upcoming podcast. But I had to go away, quit work, take a break from life, go away for a while. When I came back. My mother had died, and my apartment that I shared with her had been emptied out. I hardly had any of my belongings. I went and stayed with my sister who lived in the same town as I did for a while, and then I moved to the suburbs of Chicago, and then from there moved into Chicago. Um, so... The jobs that I took when I came back to real life didn't have anything to do with photography. 
So I kind of put that aside for a while. And then I gave the camera back to my sister when I moved in with her in the suburbs of Chicago. She was very happy to get it back. And then when I moved to Chicago, sometime after I had moved there, I got a job in Chicago and I kept that for a while. But at some point, I was out of a job and I was... I saw an ad for a photographer. So I went in for this interview and I took that same scrapbook that I'm talking about with me. And this person was very impressed. And they wanted a city photographer. I think it was about selling, you know, like a freelance photographer. She was an agent for freelance photographers and then would sell, um, photographs to different media outlets. So she said to me, I'm giving you this roll of film. I want you to take this roll of film. I want you to shoot it and I want you to come back. So I remember getting a friend to go with me to Lake Michigan and run along the beach. I think he had a dog. And so run along the beach and I would take pictures of him and his dog and him, you know, jumping in the air. And maybe he was using a skateboard along the boardwalk. I can't recall the details of that exactly, but. And then I sent the roll of film back to her. And then she called me back in. Which I don't think she needed to do. By the way, I just want to put that out there for the record. But she called me back in and she said, you clearly had taken someone else's photography when you brought that scrapbook of photographs in here. Because this was the worst role of film I have ever had turned in. I was shocked. I mean, it had been, I don't know, maybe 10 years, but I don't think it had been that long. She didn't let me see the photographs. So, but I can't imagine that she wouldn't want, why would she lie about that, right? I mean, she was definitely a bitch. I mean, why do you call someone in to tear them down so much? Just call them up and say, you didn't get the job, whatever. I, I was shocked. My jaw dropped. But she didn't let me see them. But after I went away, and I've thought about this for decades now, does talent just go away? Had I really done that poorly on that roll of film? And if so... Had I ever done well on a roll of film or was it just the amount of photographs that I had taken, the patience of the real photographer at the leader to pick out the ones that worked? Because I know that there were some shots that didn't work. Uh, I saw them myself when I was processing them in the darkroom at the leader. So is it just that I was a specific photographer 
for that job. And that's where my talent was. That's where it sparked up. And that I wouldn't be a good photographer any other time in my life. These questions have haunted me. I have not taken photographs for many decades after that interview with that woman because I thought I had failed. So what do you think? Do you think you can lose a talent for something? Now, we all know that muscle memory works to make someone better, right? Practice uh, makes something a lot easier to do. And I was taking quite a few photographs, but... Did I never have an innate talent for that? Do you have any situations that are like this in your life where you were really good at something at one time and then all talent in that area was lost? I wonder if it was domain or place specific. I guess I'll never know the answer. I could look up that photographer and see if he's on Facebook and ask him if he really had to comb through thousands of my photographs to get a good one to put in the paper that week. But I'm wondering if other people have experiences like this. I also wonder if I had changed so much in that time period that I had actually lost my eye. But now when I look at my photographs that I have been taking and posting on Instagram and just sharing with my friends, I see that I do have a photographic eye. So how could I have lost that photographic eye just for that one particular experience? When I worked for the film and commercial production magazine screen, I remember covering directors that were specifists and directors that were generalists. So a generalist would be a commercial director who could shoot anything. They could shoot food, they could shoot kids, they could shoot live action, other types of still life. And so that's how they marketed themselves. The specific directors that had a specific niche were ones that just did tabletop, which was food photography. Or I knew a guy who only did commercials with kids. That was his specific niche. What I found, what I learned about writing about this type of uh, dual convention in the film industry was that there were times when the generalist would get more work and then there were times of specificity when the specific directors would get more work. So I wonder if this links to this story about photography. I wonder if I was just a specifist at that time and that was what 
the biorhythm of the age was. But I was a generalist too, because I was setting up all of those interesting shots uh, for the other um, tasks I had for that paper. I think that the political mode that America is in right now is kind of generalist. I think people are listening to their own echo chambers. I think that they're not listening. It's kind of stream of consciousness listening in a way. So you don't have to listen too closely, right? Because you're listening to people who have a like mind to yours. Will we reach an age of specificity? If I had my prognostication hat, I feel like we're moving out of generality into specificity. I hope I wasn't too harsh on myself by calling myself a dilettante. I think it's a word that gets a negative connotation when it actually shouldn't. What do you think, listeners? Are you a generalist or a specifist? Have you had a talent at one time that seemingly went away? And then did it come back? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at theprofessorforever at gmail. Log on to Facebook if you're on Facebook and uh, join my extra credit with the Professor Forever page. Love to have you. I hope you're having a safe, warm, and pool-filled 4th of July week. Thank you for listening. Take care. And keep thinking. She's got no lessons planned for me because she's not that fancy. She's a professor forever. Professor.